Gateway. Happy Sunday to you. If you can believe it, we are still in the midst of this thing and Lord willing, moving our way toward a new and fresh season. My prayers, our prayers as a leadership team are with you. Uh, we are praying that God will increase the resolve of your hearts to be united, to be united in prayer, to come and seek Jesus's face wherever he is to pursue his presence, to contend for his kingdom to come here in Des Moines as it is in heaven, to, to join him in the renewal of all things. You know, I'm just re reminded in this moment, uh, the first time that I served with Joppa in our community was the first time that I saw in the city of Des Moines what desperation looked like. And, and every third Sunday of the month, we have a crew of people who go out and they love um, the homeless population in the city of Des Moines. They um, love them in practical ways. They try and resource them. It's a beautiful thing. I would encourage everyone in our church to do it once a year. <laughs> no joke. Um, to see the city we live in, to have a vision for what renewal might look like in this space. But I was struck because I don't see a lot of desperation in my day-to-day -day life. I, I see a, a, a pleading toddler or uh, like a hungry wife from time to time, uh, but I don't see genuine desperation. And yet that's where this text today in Mark 9 will lead us. And so I wanna invite you um, to just flip or tap your way on over to the gospel according to Mark, starting in Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And if you're new with us, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Uh, We've been in Mark for a little while now, <laughs> really since uh, the beginning of January. And, um, and for this whole year, we've had this desire to situate ourselves in front of Jesus so that we might behold the grace of God in the face of Jesus, so that we might see the power, like true power, not power as the world holds it, but power as God holds it in the face of Jesus. And so that we might see ourselves. It's this space of seeing ourselves rightly in the love of God. And we don't want to just leave that space. We want to linger in it. So we've been doing this slow roll through the gospel according to Mark. And a couple of weeks ago, Mark shifted the focus in Mark 8 from who is this Jesus to how can Jesus be who he is? And this messianic secret is revealed. Jesus is named as the one, that the king who will come and save the Jews, but it's not in the way that Jesus' disciples expected. Um, and really, the, the focus then shifts to the cross, to the cruciform Jesus, which is really just a churchy way to say that Jesus' life and mission isn't to reign in power, like maybe some people think. Rather, the life and mission of, of Jesus is to serve in love, to give himself away in love, even if that means death and death on a Roman execution rack. And if you could imagine, uh, these would be, and really they still are hard words for us to get our minds, our hearts, our imaginations around. And so God, God graciously, he, he graciously affirms his purposes in Jesus. He does so by transforming Jesus's likeness in the love of God, just like words are transformed in song. So too, Jesus is transformed in the love of God and some of his closest followers are able to see this transformation. And it's in the wake of, of these moments, this shift and this transformation, 
that affirms Jesus' divine vocation. It's in light of these things that we pick up in our passage today. So starting in verse 14, this is what we read. And when they came to the disciples, stop right there. (laughs) They're up on a mountain. They're coming down the mountain. This is Jesus and James, John, Peter. Okay, let's keep going. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, that is Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered, well, teacher, I brought, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I, I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. It's striking. Where following Jesus may lead us. I mean, how many of you this past weekend had a neighbor or a friend call you to pray with someone or to perhaps come over because that someone was manifesting a demon, an unclean spirit? That wasn't my experience this past weekend. My guess is it wasn't your experience this past weekend. And yet when we read this account in Mark 9, Mark's assumption is that those who name the name of Jesus, that is those who trust Jesus, specifically his disciples here, are the ones to whom desperation runs. That somehow Jesus' name attracts desperation because those who carry Jesus' name ought to know what to do with it. But what happens when desperation is too much for us to handle? Well, quite simply, we live in an expert culture a time and a place with a great value for niche expertise. And I'm not talking about like armchair experts like everybody on Twitter right now. No, this is, this is you have a, a person who comes to you, you don't know how to handle their emotional interchange. And so you encourage them to go see your therapist because you've experienced from them that that is a safe space. They have a niche expertise that helps process the desperation of life. So you refer. That's what we do. We refer, and refer is the kind way to say we push away. And it is a kind way, but we also do it in unkind ways. When, when this desperation is, is too much, when we don't know what to do with it, we shun it or we avoid it, we turn a blind eye to it. I'm guilty for countless times seeing the person panhandling on the side of the road who looks me square in the eye and I drive right past them. Or, or, or maybe I, I like get over to the other lane so I don't have to interact with them. I mean, it's this, this, this like revulsion. I don't, it's this shameful thing that comes out. What is it? Well, it's this, I wanna refer, I wanna defer. I, I don't want it to, I don't want that. Let the experts deal with that. But the disciples, They've done this before. When when we think about this scene, they've done the thing that they've been asked to do. When desperation comes to them, they've encountered it. They've dealt with it. Think about when Jesus sent the disciples out to the villages to 
uh, prepare the way, to proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand in Jesus? They went, and with power they did so. With authority they taught, and they cast out demons in Jesus' name. So what's going on here? (laughs) Well, Mark says it plainly that they were asked to cast out the demon by this father and that they couldn't, that they were unable. It, It was a moment beyond their ability. And I think that's the point. I mean, just listen to Jesus's words that follow. And this is a little bit of a longer section starting in verse 19. So, so stay here with me. And he, this is Jesus, answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? And let me just pause right there. That is not a helpful response, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus has been on the scene doing this for a minute. Like he's just, the signs, the wonders, the displays of God's authority, they have been there. He's weary. He's weary. He, he knows, he knows that the moment is coming. He just said it a few weeks ago that he is headed to be handed over. How long am I to be with you? This is a weary response. We can like make Jesus enraged here, but I I think he's weary here. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, and and notice this, the, the verb of perception there, this seeing, when the spirit saw Jesus, he knew, he was responded to Jesus. Go on. Immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said to him, from childhood. And it's often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he rose. Where do you see yourself in that story? Are you the father who time and time again cry out in desperation, seeking seeking some sort of like resolve, some sort of resolution for for one whom you love, who's chronically ill. Are you the father? Or are you the onlooking disciples, the ones who weren't quarreling, caught in the argument, but the ones who came down with Jesus? Are you just kind of observing these type of moments from afar, not sure what to do? where are you? Are you the like seemingly oblivious crowds who are still enthralled by the scribes debating with the disciples? Like, is that where you're at? 
and kind of caught up in the hubbub? Who are you? Where are you in this moment? I mean, this is what Mark has given this gospel to us for, right? To see ourselves into it, to observe and have this curiosity about it, to ask questions of ourselves like, where, how would I respond? Mark's, Mark's given this work to us as an opportunity for us to try these roles on, to see what, must it, what, what would it be like to have that sort of desperation? Because there will be a moment of desperation. Imagine if you'd already played that scenario out, see how Jesus responds. This is what Mark's doing here. But I imagine that that as we take the time to do this, that we'll, we'll soon discover that none of these roles, none of these roles are comfortable. The father is desperate. That feels gross to us. I mean, culturally, it's shameful to display desperation. Why else would we look away from those who have nothing and wear their desperation in their ragged clothes and the smell on them? Like, why else would we look away? Because it feels gross. So we, we don't really want to feel what the Father feels. I mean, the disciples are possibly ashamed at their inability to carry Jesus' name as they once did, so... Shame, certainly, we'll stay as far away from that as possible. Uh, the, the crowds, and they're just as listless as ever, kind of blown to and fro. The scribes have their attention. Jesus has their attention. Oh, look, he did a thing. Let's run after him. Like So I don't think that's how we really want to see ourselves. None of that is comfortable. I mean, the scribes, they're caught up in divisive quarreling. So certainly we don't, we don't want to be there because that's uncomfortable. We don't like the tension of disagreement. See, in any of these places, like, Mark, if, if you have written this so that we might see Jesus clearly and see ourselves clearly in light of Jesus, um, why doesn't any of this feel like the life I expected with Jesus? <laughs> do, you, do you get what I'm saying? Do, do you feel that? Like, when we see this moment, this is odd, right? And if that's not enough, what must it feel like for Jesus to call you faithless? But let me ask, is this the goal? Like, is this, is this the telos, the end goal of the Christian life? To be comfortable? To have a relative ease as we follow Jesus? To never encounter desperation or shame or, or any of those elements, to, to, uh, the shadowy parts of life? See, when I uh, came to living faith in undergrad, I, I found Jesus to be so compelling. I, like his way of living in the world, the way his, he loved people, the, um, I mean, his, like the dynamic nature of his teaching and his healings. Like I'd never seen or heard of anybody like this. And certainly I'd heard of Jesus, but man, when I saw him, it just, I didn't know quite what to do with him, but wanted to follow him. And I was asked, do I want to do this Jesus thing? That was literally the question I was asked. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, let's do this. Um, which meant I got plugged in to a community. I got plugged into a church. I started reading this weird book called the Bible. Uh, other people were praying. So I, I started praying and prayer is one of those things that you really figure out by doing it. <laughs> it's, let's just be honest, uh, but just as an aside, uh, prayer is weird in that prayer is cultivating intimacy with God. And talking to real humans can be hard enough. 
let alone talking to the God of the cosmos made manifest in Jesus, who then gave himself to us in the spirit, who's fully with us and, uh, and we can commune with him. We can be present to him in silence. We can be present to him as we speak. Like that's an odd thing, but I saw people around me doing it. So I just started doing it because that's what you do when you follow Jesus. You, you show up, you do these things, and then you go to these ministries and you have a little bit of zeal and people ask you to lead. So you lead. So I, I, I quickly, um, like the older gals at church would say, oh, you're so on fire, which I thought was offensive at first, but I realized, oh, that's a, that's a good thing. <laughs> and there I was. But what I didn't know was that following Jesus was really a mixed bag. See, I still had all these disordered desires. So following Jesus became like joyful and frustrating. It became peaceful and chaotic. It was this swirly mess, a mixed bag. So I thought that life with Jesus, when I was walked through saying yes to following Jesus, like some sort of contractual formula, was that there's new life, that the old had passed away, that the new had come. And positionally, that was true. That is, in Christ, we are hidden in the heavens. We are seated with him. We are reigning and ruling with him right now. And yet, conditionally, that was not the reality. And no amount of white-knuckled prayer or Bible study or attendance to this or that group or Sunday mornings dealt with that mixed bag of desires. It didn't like actually get to the root of that stuff. Because then I, I still had those things lingering in the backdrop. And none of the doing prepared my inner person for the desperation of my own heart or the desperation around me. So I needed more than just outward evidences. I needed internal, I needed inner formation to deal with that stuff. And I love, I love what Pastor Susie Silk, who's this brilliant teacher out at Church of the City in, in New York, she she says this speaking on a disciple's life with Jesus. She says, oftentimes in life, we think, I can't get through this. There's no way, God. You've got to take it away. It's the only way I'm going to get through this obstacle, this pain, this situation in life. And although there are times in life when God does remove things, there are also so many times in life when God doesn't remove the pain. He doesn't take away the mountain. No, he changes our feet so we can scale the mountain in the midst of pain, in the midst of a devastating season. God will train us. God will train us. He will change our feet. And there was something about her words there that that captured my imagination and pulled me back into this story that there is a transforming reality that when we meet with Jesus, because, because desperation goes to meet Jesus because there's a hope that desperation doesn't have to remain desperate. So what is that? Well, Jesus's words, they reposition this whole scene and they do so by this. They give this man space so that his desperation doesn't have to stay that way. L listen again to verse 23. This is what Jesus says. He says, if you can, responding to this man, Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And I, I love this man's response. It it's, it's where I want us to spend the bulk of our, of our remaining time. 
immediately the father, Mark's commentary here is beautiful, immediately the father of the child cried out. So it's not just a passive statement, it is a cry and said, I believe, help my unbelief. The honesty and the sincerity of this man in this moment, to be where he is and not where he's not, is such a gift for our church. He owns it. He straight up owns that he is desperate. When was the last time? When was the last time you did that? Today, maybe? Two years? Never? See, there's a power in naming where we are. Just for example, just as an aside, maybe not a painful thing, but if you're a small organization, but you're trying to perform like a large organization, (laughs) that's going to strain you. You'll, you'll continue to live into a space where you simply are not. And we, we do this as people. We, we think we ought to be this. We allow the oughts and shoulds of our days to form our inner person rather than the words of Jesus. So, so we think we ought to be beautiful because those are all the images we see displayed in magazines and advertisements. We ought to be fit because that is certainly where people are living their best lives is with no shirt on and always athleticing. And then we allow these images and these messages to form our inner person. But then when the inner person is still tumultuous, when the waters are still chaotic, when the desires are still disordered and it's a mixed bag, and we're, we're still claiming to be with Jesus, I don't, It feels even more disordered. And so the honesty and the sincerity of this man, it is a gift to our church. Because what it displays for us is that we can be where we are and not where we're not. We, We can say no to the oughts and shoulds and we can own, we can own the moment, the place where we are. Just hear this prayer again. I believe, help my unbelief. This sounds nothing like the polite plea this man made to Jesus just a moment before. If you can remember, he said this. Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. No. No, the reframing of the situation makes it so that this man can cry aloud. He doesn't have to be polite with Jesus any longer. He can be how he actually is. And that's the invitation of Jesus. Like the full weight of this man's desperation falls upon Jesus. And it's here. It's in this space when he entrusts his desperation to Jesus that something shifts and the whole story turns. And if you look closely, you can see the shift and it's in this. It's where if turns into belief because if is the space of self-protection, which denies the gospel's power. 
It entrusts ourselves and denies the gospel. If is the space of self-protection, I believe is the space of trust. If perceives only a limited amount of possibilities, I believe is where all things are possible. I believe is ultimately the participatory act of life with Jesus. So to say it that way, for Jesus to call out to this man, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes is for Jesus to say, what are you going to do? And immediately, immediately, the man cries out, I believe. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He says, help me with my unbelief. This this act of participation is assumed in this man's words more than it is in Jesus's. Jesus's words makes space for this man to move in. The man's word assumes that Jesus will move towards him. Why is that? Well, it's the same principle as we covered before because desperation moves towards Jesus because desperation can actually be transformed in Jesus's presence. So this hope was lingering in the backdrop and Jesus's words create space for it to come to the fore, for it to no longer be if, but to be I believe. And this is shocking when we consider the next verse in verse 28. Go there with me. And when he had entered the house, this is Jesus, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Does this mean the gap for the disciples, the inability to cast out the demon is because of unbelief? I think so. I think what we see here is that though they are near to Jesus, though they are his disciples, though they are the ones who carry the name of Jesus, the ones to whom the man brings his child, they are far, far from Jesus. They're not with Jesus. Their hearts have grown hard. How's your heart doing? Is a question you sometimes hear in churchy contexts. And so we re like, we recoil at that. But really, how's your heart doing? The heart in the biblical imagination is your whole person. It's the seat of your mind, your will, your intellect. It's the space from where you live out. It's where we allow understanding to shape and form us. It forms our heart. It's the place out of which the mouth speaks. It's the center of who we are. How's that right now? Is it in that space of if, of compromised trust? of an inability to move toward Jesus? Like, who, who hurt you in the past? In and outside of the church that you're unwilling to forgive? Who offended you to the point that you said, I will never, I will never forgive that person? How's 
How's your heart? See, in this man, Jesus saw someone whose heart was pliable. I don't know Mark doesn't explicitly say that. And so I'm making an inference and I could be wrong, but what I see in this is a man who comes with an if and leaves with belief. But his belief, it's littered with unbelief all around it. And what does Jesus take? He takes the belief and does, does more with that than the if. Jesus takes us who are unguarded. He takes the ones who are unguarded with their desperation and lays it on his feet because he wants to transform our desperation into dependence. The presence of Jesus, the name of Jesus, transforms desperation into dependence on Jesus. Maybe the disciples couldn't cast out the demon in Jesus' name. What if in that moment, they too, they too said, I believe, help my unbelief. Do you think they're trying to save face? Do you think they're trying to think, like, my mind went here, I'm like, okay, I'm a, I'm a pastor, so I have to have the right answers. I have to have the right strategy. I have to have the good illustrations. I have to, 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 I must, I need, I have to. Less desperation come and I don't know what to do, but I can do nothing apart from Jesus because none of my doing will actually deal with my desperation or when desperation comes to me. The only one who can deal with that is Jesus because desperation is transformed into dependence in Jesus's presence. And the gift church is that we carry Jesus's presence. Did you know that? And because of that, because of that, we carry within us a reality that can shake loose, can shake loose the foundation we've built around if, so that we can finally build a life of I believe on the one and true foundation who is Jesus. I, I don't know how you need to embody this prayer this week, but in my prayer for you, my, really my call to you and to myself and to us as a community, to you who are here for the first time, and you're like, well, this is kind of intense. Pray this prayer. Do not let it leave your lips. Every momentary lapse where you're just like, ah, oh, I believe, help my unbelief. Allow it to shape you. Allow it to form you. Allow those things to live in tension. Allow yourself to come to Jesus because he can take your desperation. Allow him to transform it into dependence. And to that end, let me just pray that that would actually be one of the greatest markers of our community is a desperate people dependent on Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, you and you alone are the place where the cleansing can happen. You and you alone are the place where our ifs can become beliefs, where, where the, the foundations that we've built for our half-truths and kind of faith can become sure even if it doesn't appear sure to the world. Give us the courage to trust you, I pray. Amen.